This podcast is primarily recorded on the traditional territories of the Huron-Wendat and Haudenosaunee peoples, in Cataraqui, or Kingston by its colonial name. We center the rightful stewards of this land in order to unsettle our fight for collective liberation. Hi! Welcome to Queer Muslim Resistance, a podcast from Oprah Kingston. I'm one of your hosts, Maha, and today I'm so excited to speak with Catherine, a black, sexually fluid Muslim woman and owner of House of Body, spelt B-A-W-D-Y, an online adult novelty store that unapologetically prioritizes the pleasure of BIPOC, queer folks, people of marginalized genders, and all of our community's vibrant intersections. For timing, we have split our conversation up into two episodes, a part one and a part two, each with a debriefing segment with me and Taylor, but Nicole couldn't make it this week. This week, we hear Catherine's story as a queer femme who grew up in a nation of Islam family. We'll learn more about her work with House of Body and about reclaiming pleasure in next week's episode. I really want to get straight into your work with House of Body, but we can't do that first. We need to give you like, you know, <laughs> some time. Yeah, kind of warm it up. That's exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So just any background information you'd like to share, like your pronouns, where you're based? Yeah, um, my pronouns are she, her. My name is Catherine. Those about me questions are always so hot because they're so know, big, right? right? Um, okay, so I'm like physically in um, New Hampshire, U.S. And I love the fact that you you open this with such intention and, and the power of naming, right? Um, and I appreciate that I had to like go and Google and research and figure out like whose land am I actually on? And um, I learned one Apparently, I wrote it down. I thought it was so incredible. I spent hours. I was like, did you know this? (laughs) The Abenaki and Pawtucket peoples. And I learned that despite how Massachusetts, which is right below New Hampshire, has at least some level of recognition of the Native peoples who are present. And then Vermont, which is to, like, if you're looking at a map, it's to the left of New Hampshire. They also have um, pretty clear even if not as right or full as they should be, um, understanding of who lives there and the, the, the kick and sway they have over the land. New Hampshire has none of that. Wow. Nothing. So I looked up if there were treaties, if there was recognition, if there's a festival, something. <laughs> and it was really disappointing. So by all like really white terms, I live in New Hampshire. I was born in Hawaii which has its own history with colonialism that is far more recent than this area um, and therefore far more present and currently being thought about. Um, My father was in the military, so I moved around all over the place, which is awesome because you can either like feel like you never belong anywhere or get this really cool sense of adventure. And I feel like I got a healthy enough mix of both. Um, I am engaged, woo. She got fancy and proposed in Mexico last year. And I was like, what? You pick me for real? Are you sure? But she does. (laughs) So exciting. Congrats. Thanks. And um, yeah, no, I really appreciate that this exists. This really, really deep sense of like aloneness and like loneliness. And then to have really recently, actually, maybe in the past like couple years, 
you you Google search one thing and like, boom, you realize you're not the only queer person in the world. You're not the only queer Muslim in the world. And then you add that on top of the intersections. Of, so I identify as a Black, sexually fluid Muslim woman. And that carries so many connotations in just its parts, not even like the wholeness of it here in this country, <laughs> that to know that you're not alone is empowering. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, I, um, I've been in hospitality and food service for 10 years, but my passion is around besides words and reading and all that amazingness, which is a very big deal to me. But my passion is around um, sexual wellness, sensual wellness, um, the access and conversations that are spurred around um, adult novelties and what that can mean for an individual person, for coupleships, for more than two in, in partnership. Um, I just think it's an incredibly important conversation and it always frustrates me when I, or frustrated me when I didn't see anybody that looked like, sound like, lived like me having these kinds of conversations because it's one thing to keep saying representation matters. It's another thing to actually have the representation. And then you just, you get the visceral idea of why Mm. that sense of belonging matters. So that's my big deal. That's what I, that's what I do. That's so awesome. Yeah. I'm so excited to get to know more about your line of work. Um, But before we get into that, I just want to ask you what your introduction to Islam looked like. It's interesting. So I had to learn recently anyway, that my upbringing in Islam wasn't one that somehow alienated me from the rest of the Islamic community as like a global whole. Mm -hmm. So, um, I was born into a nation of Islam family, which is very specific to the United States. And it's very, also it's very like black, like that's a very Mm -hmm. black people thing to have to, you know, navigate. Um, And it's, it's bubbled just like a lot of things in Islam are, are kind of like its own little world until you start to figure out how everybody else operates. And when I did, I start to think that, um, I I battled ideas of, oh, is this made up? (laughs) Or um, is this somehow separate from the rest of Islam, the rest of the world? And like, not really. Everybody's got their own interpretations and what they'll end up doing with it. But that was my introduction. My mother's mother was a member of the NOI. um, Therefore, she raised her children in that fashion. Um, My, it was such a huge part of my mother's upbringing. So it's just a big part of her day to day of her schooling. Um, and I can't say that, that that was necessarily my life. I didn't start school as young as she did. I didn't have some of the same traumas that are attached to going to a really Islamic school. Um, I definitely did, you know, hear all of the teachings every, for us, it's Sundays instead of Fridays. I definitely did learn all of the very like militant concepts and understand that it was bred of, of protection. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people will will blame it and think that it's just like this really hyper cherry picked violent version of Islam, and like there are lots of things like that. So to just blame the NOI for for being that yeah. is not fair. And it was a really long time of feeling like this version of Islam from my childhood um, is so separate from the rest of the world. 
but then also appreciating it. It's this odd dichotomy. There are things that are so specific to Black American Muslims that it's it's like its own culture. It is mm-hmm. its own way of being. And it's beautiful. I remember feeling so loved and accepted when we would go to the mosque and all of these sisters are always trying to feed me and you know, they're, they're so supportive and they're always separating me from my mom. Like, no, 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 come here. I can help. I will teach you. I will show you. What do you mean? You don't know how to do this. Where have you been? Come. (laughs) And it's, it's beautiful. Like everything's got its issues. I mean, you can do any simple Google search and see people's issues with the NOI, but I also know the love that's there. And there's something about a really fierce love and this level of protection and this level of you know we are here and you're not gonna fuck with us that black people really freaking needed and still need sometimes that I respect um about the NRI so that that's my introduction I can't necessarily say that that's my reality now but I still appreciate what that meant to my family and the kind of structure that that created in a household. Yeah, so you said that it gave you protection or that its whole ideas were about protection. Do you mind expanding a little bit on that? So um, there's a lot that goes into the history of the NOI and mm-hmm. it's, it's birthing in Chicago, but you also have to pay attention to the time in which it really caught fire. And it was a really, really rough really dangerous time for Black Americans. And it's not to say that times weren't dangerous before and they don't still continue to be incredibly violent, but in the period of time that the NOI was founded, there was definitely a very clear delineation of, I don't want to suffer anymore and you won't listen, so this is what I'm going to do about it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very structured, regimented, discipline-based kind of kind of community. The young men are always trained, for lack of a better word, very similarly to how civil soldiers would be. This is how we organize. This is how we protect the women around us. This is what we will eat. This is how we will operate. This is how we will dress. This is how we will fundraise, community organize. This is how we won't take anybody else's shit. It's very, very clear, very, very regimented um the the women there is a very i mean sexism carries across a lot of different cultural norms in islam this is how we'll take care of of our home this is how we'll make sure that the the men stay strong so that there is this level of protection this is how we'll make sure that the children are taught who they are where they come from it's a very interesting way to blend this quintessential blackness and the concepts of Islam. And I think that they meet in a very interesting place in between because of the discipline that's already very present in Islam, because of the Quran teaching you exactly how you'll live and how you'll operate and how to conduct yourself when you put that kind of structure on top of a lot of like people that may not have had that kind of structure in like inner city Chicago, mm-hmm. you create a spark that is not to be ignored and was very important for the time. And I am not surprised that it permeated the the country, especially the East Coast and large cities and large concentrations of Black folks um, in the ways that it did. Um, Probably more like the Northeast. And I think that they needed a connection to, to Blackness in a way that their Southern counterparts 
um, had because they were still living in such a state that they needed. I feel like a lot of Southern Black folks needed relief more than they needed more structure because they were still in, in the thick of where everything you know, comes from for Black folks, all of this pain that still comes from there. It's not to necessarily say that like, you know, Black folks are running around without any kind of sense of self and structure and blah, 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 blah but it's definitely, um, it's, it's definitely has a different effect on, on Northeastern folks and folks in Chicago than it would have had, in my personal opinion, on um, Southern states and Black folks there. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what I mean. It's a very regimented idea of living, which is its own level of stress, but I get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've said to me before that you don't walk through the world as an obvious Muslim woman. What do you mean by that? So I've always felt for brothers and sisters who you read their name on a paper and you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, the only aspect of my name that anybody would ever even bother to ask any questions is like half of my last name. So like my entire name is Catherine, Naj- Catherine Elaine Najee Sabir Beach. I don't know how you screw up your own name, but <laughs> there you go. And I mean, my mother always told me when I was younger that um, pronounced in terrible English, Sabir, that patience. And I always felt like I was never connected to that. I'm so impatient now. I try my best to at least navigate that properly when I was younger it was terrible um, and she's like no maybe we should work on this aspect of yourself it's in your name and now I'm just like great now I feel guilty but also I don't <laughs> I don't want to wait for things like I feel like yeah. if I work hard enough they should happen I'm working hard enough that I'm respecting it to happen let's go not how the world works but <laughs> and then it wasn't until high school that I heard a Muslim classmate pronounce my name properly and I was like, oh, that sounds way more beautiful. Also, I don't know if my throat can do that. So <laughs> please say it over and over again. I can almost kind of do it now. I won't hear. But at least <laughs> it sounds good when I say it. And it feels connective, especially because that was still during a period when I heard it for the first time. It was still during a period of time where I felt like my Islam was very specific to the U.S. or to Black people. And therefore, I wasn't connected to the global concept and the global um, community of Islam. So to hear this beautiful hijabi girl say my name, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm at least welcome in this conversation. And that's a solid place to start. So um, I don't typically dress hyper-modestly. Um, I can get mouthy in a variety of different ways. I um, am engaged to a woman. There's all of these things that people would think are in direct opposition to Islam. So I can understand when I walk out in the world, that's not the first thing that people think of. Plus, there's so many other intersections that are so much more obvious about me that I can understand why that wouldn't automatically hit somebody's list. You see me and you see a Black woman. Those two right there are its own levels of conversation, of danger, of of fear, of all types of things, of beauty. Mm -hmm. Um, You see me and I've got like shoulder length locked hair. That's its own level of conversation I didn't anticipate was so deep when I did it especially because I live in a racially homogenous area. So there's always this concept of boundary um, that can be ignored from time to time. There is this 
um, lack of understanding. There's all of these things that I'm in my brain thinking like my hair grows like this while other white folks are just like, how can I touch it? Do you wash it? Disrespectful. <laughs> so there, I, those are the things people see first and then it hits Ramadan and they're like, whoa, where did this come <laughs> from? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, I, I don't talk about, you know, my experiences being in Moss very often. I'm not ashamed of them, but it also wasn't that big a part of my life as it was for other Muslim children. I don't have these really connective, really broad sense of, of community, even outside of Islam, because we moved so much when I was in, uh, when my father was in the military, that these little senses of families and therefore broad sense of community is something I've learned about and started to respect recently. So yeah, I don't think I walk the world as like an obvious Muslim woman, but I think that that also is its own level of power. Um, because if I decide to and have decided to reconcile what Islam and my queerness means, what Islam and my blackness means, what all three of those mean together and then throw the gender cherry on top, um, I might be heard differently than someone else who enters the room, you know, long sleeved, down to the ankles, full hijab, nobody's listening to her in quite the same way anymore. Or they're thinking, oh yeah, you would think this. Oh yeah, you would try to defend this. Oh yeah, well, that's all you know. And it's so much more vast than that. But if I show up in my tank top and hair free, you're listening to me differently. I don't think it's fair, but I do think it's a, it's a privilege that I can enjoy and flex when necessary. Yeah, yeah. So how does it feel like when you're read a different way to the way that you experience yourself? Like what's your relationship like with yourself and with the divine? So um, in an interesting way, those are almost two separate questions, which is yeah. always hard, right? So um, as an adult, I feel closer to my face than when I was younger, but I also think it's because it's on purpose. Now it's not something that like you have to do, right? You have all of these things when you're younger that, you know, your your parents make sure that you have to learn and you have to do. And Islam is no different, you know, especially because it dictates how much attention you pay certain aspects of your life and how you're supposed to live it. I mean, I say that and people don't quite understand, but I'm like, no, let me open the Quran. It tells you exactly play by play how you can do every single day, every single day. Um, And then you add in the structure of the NOI and then they will not only tell you what you, you know, um, what happens every single day, but how you can, how you can eat, how you can clean yourself and the structure of the NOI that's, it looks a little bit differently than it does in the Quran. And in some ways it's a lot more strict. So the relationship now feels a lot less obligatory. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's own, it's its own level of beauty. Um, when you choose to do something because you want it, because you feel it, because you feel like you belong yeah. to it, because it's giving to you and you're giving to it. But I remember my my mother saying when I was younger, and there's all of these cute sayings in, in lots of Muslim communities, but my mom would always say, um, Allah never lets go of your hand unless you let go of his. And so I figured that even if I paused 
in what what Islam meant to me when I was younger, just to try and figure out my shit now, <laughs> that it's okay because I can still come home in a way if I chose to. Um, and at the very least, just me as a person, I'm always going to respect what that was, even if that's not how I identify now, which I do. But if I didn't, like, I don't know, my mom's golden to me. She said that it's, a, <laughs> I, I won't get let go of. So we'll work from there. Um, but I think that having that kind of dissonance um, created a lot of room for, for healing. Um, and I think I needed to, and I didn't realize it until recently, but I think I needed to put that down for a moment to then, for the first part of your question, figure out that relationship with, with myself and how I walk through the world. So when I was younger, um, I this concept of and reality of Blackness wasn't very real to me, I guess, until I was, you know, a little, like, maybe eight or nine-ish or something. But moving around in the military so often, I was always around white kids. I was always around in Hawaii and, you know, around maybe more native folks, but on base and um, off base housing and things like that. These are very white communities oftentimes. So me thinking that I was somehow different or somehow um, lesser than, which is how blackness is painted globally, um, didn't didn't really hit me until I unfortunately went to school with other children who looked like me who that had been such a huge part of their lives and childhood and culture that I mean hurt people hurt people right so they you know spewed that onto my my sense of self and I, I didn't know what to do with it so then I have to now learn how to navigate well what do I look like who am I because according to my mom according to my parents everything about me is beautiful so what is this new concept I'm now having to battle with why am I now being treated this way my mother would braid my hair and tell me that she braided me a crown and I believed her and Aww. now it's somehow different it's somehow wrong it's somehow you know dirty or unkept or less than because it's not straightened I'm so it's just like it was like being thrown into like a cold pool I'm like I don't understand what's happening so that is like one way I had to like learn to navigate who I am and realize that I'm no less black for having different experiences than other people but the flip side is no one else is a lesser version of blackness because they didn't have my experiences which was a different lesson that I had to learn um and then trying to smash together Islam and, and queerness didn't happen until the past couple of years, honestly. And I think it came with the realization that I never actually dealt with it. Like I, I put it down. I'm like, oh, okay. I went through these experiences of thinking I'm, I'm going to go to hell. Like that just is what it is. Let's enjoy this life while I've got it. Boom, done. Um, then that, you know, there's this, this, I remember sitting all the way in the back <laughs> when on Sundays and hearing, um, you know, guest speakers brought into the mosque on any particular day, and one person explaining that the concept of hell is actually now. Like you're, you're mm -hmm. actually this earth, this world, this thing we're doing right now is actually like, like the test. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that doing and navigating and learning in the now grants some 
version of peace later. And all I'm thinking is that sounds terrible. That sounds so stressful. And then when I remember things like that, and then try and navigate this concept of queerness that I didn't even have a name for for so long. I'm like, well, if this earth, if this life I'm living is already hell, then let's ride this out. Like, let's do it because I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to make this work in a way that's both permissible to what everybody else is teaching me is permissible to a lot and also permissible to my own spirit. Like I, I can't mm-hmm. reconcile this. So I'm just going to choose me and I'll deal with the rest later, whenever later is, whatever later looks like. Um, I don't, I don't think I'm just going to burn now. Um, but that's also stressful because that's not, that's not a healthy way to operate anything. Um, but in your previous podcast I was listening to, I was so moved by this, this interesting concept that queer Muslims always feel like you're like the only one. And then when that world explodes, just cracks wide open. I need people to understand that. Like, it doesn't just happen when you like meet one person or whatever. Like it goes from zero to 1,000. Yep. Oh yeah. And it's gorgeous and overwhelming and beautiful. But I think that I'm most moved by this concept of guilt and how permeating that is for somebody to feel so alone and then to realize you're not only unknown, but everybody feels that. The, this teaching of Islam through guilt and fear and violence that everybody feels as though that they couldn't belong to themselves at one point. Um, and then this trying to belong to yourself and how hard that is and all of the the teachings manifesting in really interesting ways i'm like i didn't know that not only i wasn't alone but everybody has these these experiences so i think that that also kind of helped to to bridge the gap a little bit um but yeah trying trying to to marry all those things is still something i'm working on i tell people now like i feel like i came out to myself like last year (laughs) I, I went to World Pride with my friends. I was so, so nervous because I'm like, I want to try and like, at least physically show up like how the inside of me is trying to feel. And I found a beautiful rainbow hijab and I wore my black girl magic shirt, which picture is a black woman in a rainbow hijab. Also bright red pants in the middle of New York for World Pride. And I am sweating it's also really freaking hot already and I just I'm like I don't know how this works because like even in queer communities you don't see openly queer folks of 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 a lot of organized religions but especially Islam I've met plenty of queer Christians who have owned some aspect of their faith and their sense of self but I've never met someone like me until recently and I've definitely not met someone who is as actively like unapologetic and vocal as I am and I thought that was a flaw at one point but then I realized that it might be helping somebody and so now I just have to be careful how it happens to make sure I'm not just being brazen (laughs) but um but I, I, to come out in that way into the world and have my friends be like, no, you're, you're beautiful. This is such a big deal. We support you. Um, this was before my fiance got, got engaged and she is in the streets with me holding my hand. Like, no, this is, 
this is great. I know you're nervous, but like, and it only took a few hours, but it's pride. There's music, there's glitter, there's rainbows. You'll ease up eventually. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And people asked to take my picture and I felt a little bit more whole for the first time ever. And also realized I'd never tried to reconcile these parts before. I'd never tried to define what Islam was for me. I'd never tried to define what that meant in just my day to day and not even just queerness, right? How many conversations do devout Muslim folks have about sex, which is what I do, about your body, about pleasure, which is incredibly important. That also doesn't happen. So even if I was a straight woman walking in the world, what I do right now would still be a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. What I was thinking about when you were talking about like that sort of reciprocity that religion can allow for is that phrase that there's no compulsion in religion. Yeah. Um, I just think that's such a beautiful way to look at it, especially when we're taught all these narratives of guilt, of shame, of fear. Um, So what makes faith or spirituality something, or how do you make faith or spirituality something that works for you? Um, That's interesting because I still feel like I'm doing it. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. And I don't know that I'll ever stop doing it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, I think faith and spirituality are supposed to morph and move and flex and how else would they be relevant now? And whatever now means in 3056, how would they be relevant if they can't flex a little bit and move exactly. a little bit? Yeah. Um, but what I'm doing now is doing the things that I think a big part of trying to own Islam for me was to start with the things that made me feel like I was so separate when I was younger. Um, last year, I went to a more traditional with a friend of mine and I was so excited to do the very like quintessential Ramadan things that other people had always been doing that didn't happen in quite the same way in the NOI so like at at one point I learned that it's encouraged to respect and celebrate and honor Ramadan in December for uh, some folks instead of when the lunar calendar does its thing um, for the specific lack of participation in Christmas oh that's so interesting right and the days are shorter so if you're fasting like it's a little bit easier on you um things like that which the the concept of it and the ways in which there's like this consideration that's the word I'm looking for the consideration of it is is cool like I get that but then that again that's another way I feel so separate because nobody else in the world does that (laughs) nobody so for me to for the first time have somebody outside of my family to fast with which happened at work actually um and to do like I I'd never fasted at the same time with somebody before and even with one person like that is community you know that's one person is all you really need yeah and I would come to work and I'd make soup from the night before when I can actually taste it, I'm like up at midnight making soup. (laughs) And then, you know, he would bring figs and dates and all of these other things that I didn't know for years were so very normal for everybody else. 
and he's explaining it to me and I'm explaining what faith was to me when I'm younger. And that's how you learn and love and build. Right. Yeah. So I started to think, well, let me start to do the things that the rest of the world has always been doing. And maybe that will help with my lack of sense of belonging. So uh, for the first time last year, I went to a more traditional mosque with him. I went for the first time and prayed in the same fashion that everybody else across the world had always been praying, but we didn't in the NOI. It's just, you know, I, we didn't have um, prayer mats. We didn't have the same kind of, of rituals as the rest of the world. So I'm like on YouTube for two days beforehand, trying to figure this out, like reading all types of different things. And I come across the one thing I realize I can like jump in on. And it's like, oh, traditionally, you know, new clothes are bought for that that final um, day of and this big celebration and all this food. I'm like, okay, that makes sense to me. The, the the feasting and the togetherness. And I remember going to a school where there was a pretty decent sized community of other, it was an all girls honor school and there were so many other um, Muslim girls. And they all just straight up didn't come to school for two days during the end of the And I was like, what? is happening. Can I go home too? What do you mean? And come back with so much money and presents. And I'm like, what is going on? And that just, that didn't happen in my family. So I was so excited to participate and then got incredibly nervous when I'm like, I don't know how to participate like this. This wasn't the Islam I grew up with. So I, I retail therapied it. I went to the store and I did the thing that the Google search said. I bought new clothes. And I had the beautiful women in this store helping me. They could tell I was lost. They were like, you've never done this before. I'm like, no. And they dressed me like I was going to someone's super, super like (laughs) fanciful Islamic wedding. And I felt beautiful in this gorgeous pink abaya and like matched with this. I think the woman that there, I asked her if she wanted to be a fashion designer and she said no. She just (laughs) loves helping people in this way. I'm like, that's nuts to me because I'm in this beautiful pink and gold and I've got khaki on to offset the gold. So my hijab was this khaki color. My dress is, the abayo is this bright, bright pink that I had to like wash in the sink to make sure the dye didn't ruin my clothes. And I had shoes that were the same color as my dress wow. and the pin for my hijab was the same color as my, but like I was, if I'm doing this for the first time, I'm doing it. And it helped me a lot. I'm learning so how so much of my outward appearance helps me reconcile whatever's happening on the inside. Cause that's one less thing to battle and explain, right? If I show up looking correctly, I might be forgiven for not sounding correctly. Yeah. Or if I show up looking the part, people might just believe I'm the part. And it's one less thing I have to work through while I'm already working through my own internal things. Um, and, and it felt really connective. The particular mosque he likes to go to has so many different types of cultures in there. And it was my first time meeting a very light-skinned um, Asian woman And I'm like, what do you mean? I didn't know that. I mean, you know it in history books, but like not in front of your face. A lot of um, West African folks go there. So that was interesting. And all of a sudden I did not feel overdressed anymore. Like I'm thinking I'm dressed to go to some fanciful wedding. And then these women show up and I'm like, I have nothing on Nigerian folks. Like that is (laughs) entirely different. But that's also some of the first time I was able to interact with 
Muslims who were very dark skinned and belonged to what I always thought was almost the correct way of doing Islam. And it's just, again, another world just broken wide open where I'm just like, I'm not that different. Like, yeah, yeah. That's also okay. So the that felt awesome where I'm like, at least I've got some something. I'm not that different from everybody else in the room. Mm -hmm. So I think that that was my first way to try and like reconcile what faith means to me is to go back to when I thought that faith was kind of skewed for me. And I'm like, let's do those things. And now that I did, I'm like, okay, this also doesn't feel like the kind of home and calm that I get from so many other Muslim folks. And now I get to ask why. Now I get to investigate what that is. And I figure that, well, if I were to bring my fiance here, I wouldn't belong anymore. And that's my problem. So I, 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 but I don't know that I would have felt that in quite the same way. I knew it, but I don't know if I would have felt that in quite the same way if I didn't show up, if I didn't try, if I didn't try to do Islam the way that I thought I was supposed to be doing it. And I'm like, okay, well, I already love this much of me so much. I had to work this hard to love this much of me so much. I don't want to do the same thing I was doing when I was younger, trying to separate the two and thinking that because I felt X, I'm going to burn in hell. <laughs> I don't want to now be able to feel like I can belong to Islam and feel like, oh, okay, well, I'm this much closer to everybody else's version of Islam. So now this half of me has to be denounced. That's not going to work. So uh, I like being able to experience that so I could figure out how it's supposed to live in my body. And um, the Mosque totally helps with that. I, mm -hmm. I appreciate that online community so much. I didn't know it existed at one point. And to just to just read, even if you're not like participating, to just read is so heartwarming. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear you talk about how you felt like your Islam was so, so different to the way that Islam was supposed to be practiced. And I feel like that obviously is because of your experiences with the NOI as being such a distinct or not a distinct, but such an integral part of your life. But I feel like for a lot of core Muslims who might have grown up in Sunni households or like with me, I'm Pakistani. And so nationalism is such an important part of like the way you're supposed to be practicing Islam. And like, I don't relate on that level. So I feel like as queer Muslims, there's always like this, this inability to reach the ideal, whatever we think this ideal is supposed to be. And it's so interesting to like realize that we're all practicing in such different ways, even when we think there is like a single mainstream, there's so many, there's particular voices that take up the most space <laughs> in Islamic communities or Muslim communities, but like we're all still practicing in such different ways, specific to us, specific to our families, specific to our cultures, specific to the nation states we grew up in. So yeah, I just thought that was a really good point. It's so interesting, right? Like, it's not like there's one way to do pretty much anything in the whole world. So that, that, like you said, trying to achieve the ideal when the ideal itself can't even be agreed upon is wild to me. Yeah. <laughs> like it yeah. makes no sense, but no, you're totally right. Mm -hmm. What intrigues you the most about the process of like making a song something that works for you? Intrigues me the most? Um, when you said the question, I, I, I felt really happy writing down the word blossoming. Mm. And that I think 
is incredibly intriguing to me. One, because it's happening when so many other aspects of myself are blossoming. Um, this concept of community and respecting it is not something that I was doing actively um, and I'm learning the incredible value of it. And so therefore that's one aspect of blossoming. This sense of, of belonging to yourself, whether it's just aesthetically, like I tell people all the time, if you're gonna do something for vanity, just own it. So like when I lock my hair, for instance, that was was its own version of blossoming. I'd never felt so beautiful to myself before. Um, when I am and was navigating how to be able to be in a relationship with my fiance that wasn't based on a lot of the things that my previous relationships were were based upon. Um, it, it was also its own version of, of blossoming. I was in a lot of heterosexual presenting relationships in the past. I personally identify as a sexually fluid you know, person, which a lot of people just flat out and just like bisexual. And I'm like, cool, I'm not really offended either way, but fine. I also don't disagree with how those two relate. So being able to operate with cis men and operating with my fiance are different in ways that I didn't anticipate and none of them are physical. So um, uh, that was its own level of, of blossoming, this, this kind of shift in what expectation looked like. Um, then, then comes, you know, Islam blended into all of it and trying to navigate and figure out what that means for me, how I then portray that into the world, how I figure out how to make sure that how I choose to be in faith to Allah and to myself, which shouldn't seem different, but to a lot of people are. But I'm like, if everything of this world, including myself, is of his creation um, or the universe or there or however that works, I don't think that we're big enough to be naming anything. Humans in general just are not. So mm -hmm. when everybody has different names for a thing, I'm like, yeah, you're all right. And people are like, what do you mean you're all right? I'm like, well, I do not have that kind of power. So therefore everybody's right. Because who, who's fact checking us? You know what? Is, yeah. Does Allah show up at your dining room table and be like, actually, this is my name. These are my pronouns. That's not how this works. So just figure it out and move on. <laughs> but trying to figure out what that means to me and face to you know, it's, um, and, and a lot in general as also its own version of blossoming because now I can also say that my practice and my understanding doesn't look like what the status quo would be, but I don't feel as lonely in it anymore as it did, as I did when I was younger and I felt like it didn't look the same as everybody else. Um, because now I think that my sense of self and what Islam means to me doesn't look like the NOI, doesn't look like what I thought the global majority was doing uh, anyway. So, um, but there's this profound sense of, of choice now that didn't feel like it could exist before. So all of it feels like blossoms. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Maha. Um, so it's just going to be us this week as Nicole can't make it. Mm -hmm. But we have some really cool thoughts we wanted to share about 
the first half of my conversation with Catherine. Mm-hmm. Do you want to get us started, Taylor? Yeah, so I think I was most excited to talk about this conversation and I kind of bugged Ma. Ma. I was like, I want to hear it, I want to hear it because Catherine is a Black American uh, Muslim woman and, you know, I guess I have never really interacted at all, even in the media, um, with Nation of Islam, although I knew um, what it, what I know what it is, uh, just from, you know, Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. Now, I can't tell you any of them were part of Nation of Islam as a fact, but in mm-hmm. my brain, I knew, I think Muhammad Ali was Muslim. So mm-hmm. we'll fact check this, we'll fact check this. But I was really interested in the discussion with Catherine um, because she's a Black Muslim woman and I am a Black woman and I'm very interested in learning about Islam. And the fact that I could see a lot of my experiences, religious experiences and also cultural experiences um, in her, as simple as we both love locks, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and I'm, I'm starting, I'm God willing, I'll be starting my lock journey. So that got me a little bit hyped. And so I'm really, I'm really excited to have this discussion with you. Yeah. And you're both also sexually fluid and mm-hmm. uh, bisexual, yeah. so that's fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I think I was a little jealous because I wanted to be a part of this call <laughs> for my own personal life. So how, how is life with you as a person mm-hmm. I, I might be able to identify with in some ways? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm, yeah, this yeah. is going to be cool. Yeah, so um, the first thing I kind of wanted to talk about was like this incredible power of collective healing um, through the NOI that Catherine talked about, um, mm-hmm. this form of regimented religion that Black folks found useful. But yeah, like, do you have any thoughts on that, Taylor? I mean, I obviously have, a, as I've expressed, a curiosity mm-hmm. in I'm interested in Islam and I'm also very interested in how, just like I'm very interested and I've previously studied in some respect how Christianity has is taken up by people, uh, Black people specifically, through going through slavery, going through um, colonial reign and rule, mm-hmm. and it becomes a liberation ideology. It becomes used, it, 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 it is used to free people in some mm-hmm. aspects. And, and yes, I'm very much aware, and I, I've also critiqued in many ways how religion and regimented religion is a big part of colonial mm-hmm. rule and colonial authority, and we can understand that in so many ways. But it's fascinating to me that Black people in the, you know, U.S. in the, I think, now I'm going to admit ignorance and say, I think we're talking 60s because I'm thinking civil rights movement. That's when 60s and maybe early 70s when I'm thinking about um, Malcolm X. But, and maybe my sister, if she ever listens to this, will <laughs> be shaking her head or all the listeners who know so much more about me will be shaking their heads and screaming through the phone at my ignorance. But I'm thinking that the civil rights movement and the struggles of Black Americans specifically coming out of uh, Jim Crow America is a birthed this version of religion that is in very ways, in very many ways, can is liberatory, mm-hmm. you know, and provided that sense of community and collective identity that is so strong mm-hmm. because it, it, it frees you from, you know, physical and mental oppressions in some way. 
mm-hmm. right? Ideologies that are perpetuated by um, ruling classes mm-hmm. that we are you know, socialized to believe in mm-hmm. ourselves until we find a way out. And for my experience personally in the Caribbean and my family's experience, that was through religion in some ways, in mm-hmm. very many ways. And I wonder if maybe perhaps uh, that collective identity happened as well from Nation of Islam because of those, mm-hmm. the civil unrest at least. This is all hypothesis, but that's kind of what came to my mind. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, people, like we know civil unrest is 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 the birthing ground for you know, so much creativity and rethinking of the symbols and uses that previously oppressed us. Like we Mm -hmm. know this, marginalized people are constantly reinventing Mm -hmm. ourselves and reinventing to a survival. Like Mm -hmm. we know this. So it's just, yeah, it's interesting to think about how that works with religion as well. And I mean, we've had this discussion about uh, liberation theology in different religions. So that Mm -hmm. came to mind. Yeah. But Maha, I wanted to ask you, earlier when we were talking, you were saying that you like this quote from Catherine, that dissonance creates room for healing. Mm -hmm. And I I shamefully admitted that I don't really understand what dissonance means. So can you explain that to me and listeners? Yeah, for sure. So the way I described it to Taylor earlier was that assonance is like, words that kind of rhyme because they have similar sounds or is assonance the repetition of s's i'm not too sure you know what let's google this yeah we're gonna google it so listeners assonance i was correct it means because <laughs> sibilance is s's i'm thinking back to my <laughs> high school english classes i have absolutely no idea what you're t- <laughs> okay <laughs> anyways Dissonance. Okay. Um, so assonance is the fact that like words kind of sound similar because they have similar vowels in between certain letters. So like time and find, for example. I think that's an example of assonance. We hope. Yes. But dissonance is the miss, the, if you can't, you can't see me, but right now I'm like, I've got my palms up side to side and I'm doing like a running motion. It's like things that miss miss each other miss each other they're misrepresented the google definition is a lack of harmony a lack of harmony that's a much better metaphor <laughs> how explanation i mean for visual learners <laughs> a podcast might not be helpful but for visual learners what maha was doing was great it's great very helpful for me thank you awesome mm-hmm. so um from my understanding Catherine was talking about a dissonance in like all these different aspects of who she is, right? In terms mm-hmm. of her blackness, her queerness, her Muslimness, mm-hmm. her womanness, feminists, um, and how that dissonance then creates room for healing is such an interesting concept to me. Right. Right. Like it's in it's in struggles or in this it's not necessarily a struggle mm-hmm. because not everything is a struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, there's joy and love involved in this journey. Um, But Catherine also said the word blossoming. Um, And that kind of reminds me of like the fact that we don't necessarily have answers to the questions that we might have, Mm -hmm. but we're always searching or, or answers might not be possible Mm -hmm. to the questions that we might have Mm -hmm. and the frustrations of the desires that we have to know and to be known. Um, But it's like work in working through our frustrations um, that we grow and we heal and we learn. 
right? Mm -hmm. So it's in the space kind of, it's kind of similar, but different to what I was talking about in an earlier episode about like queerness comes from, is born out of, mobilizes from sites of not queerness, of normativity. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, it's kind of like, do you get what I mean when I'm trying to relate those two ideas, Taylor? Or not? No? No. Okay. Let me try and explain it in a different way. So we grow and learn from sites of, from dissonance, from sites of disruption, mm-hmm. from disruptive sites. Mm-hmm. And those disruptive sites are born out of normativity. Or right, born, right. Like they, not born out of normativity necessarily, but they fundamentally exist in relation to or in opposition to or working against normativity. Right. Does that kind of make sense? Yes, that makes sense. Okay. That makes sense to me. When I think about dissonance and dissonance, so the quote, dissonance creating room for healing (laughs) and the idea of blossoming um, that you talked about, I think about the work (laughs) <laughs> you know, the work that dissonance kind of requires because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's not comfortable. Mm-hmm. It's set up to be, you know, not in harmony, in conflict, in, in some form of struggle. Exactly mm-hmm. what it is. It is some form of struggle mm-hmm. and it can be pleasurable. There can be pleasure in that journey. There mm-hmm. al- almost always is in mm-hmm. some regards, but being uncomfortable from that discomfort mm-hmm. comes growth, comes yes. healing, comes a, a level of, of, and for me, it's understanding, mm-hmm. you know, like it's through sitting in discomfort, through working through discomfort, through, yeah, through engaging with our discomfort and trying to work with, work through it, essentially. I've just repeated myself like four times, <laughs> but it's in that process that we are able to work towards blossoming mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like in ter- I'm trying to relate this back to our journeys or our relationships to finding rebuilding with God mm-hmm. um, however we define that I think for me ha- being uncomfortable makes you question everything mm-hmm. you know like all of a sudden the things you thought were true might not be true mm-hmm. and you kind of have to go back And you might come back to that same level of truth, Mm -hmm. but you have to get there on your own again. And that's sort of the path I'm trying to take right now. And when, when I think about it for me in religion, and that's in aspects of spirituality means trying to reconnect, like center, you know, my relationship with God and having that relationship and making sure that relationship is, is developing in a way that is healthy and strong and not out of manipulation or fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of um, when Catherine was talking about religion feeling like a choice and not mm-hmm. an obligation mm-hmm. and like having this, this mutuality because relationships go both ways right. or in all multiple directions. Right. Right. So Catherine said this beautiful thing that I mm-hmm. was like struck by. God doesn't let go of your hand until you let go first. God never releases your hand until you release first or something like that. And it's like, yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, like I don't have anything more to say uh, apart from that. It was beautiful and it Mm -hmm. it caught me. 
yeah 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 um that is a that's that's a really wonderful thing to add into that mutuality because like it's not necessarily that god will only give what you give because mm-hmm. god is the most merciful mm-hmm. so god is always giving mm-hmm. until you choose not to i don't i don't know the until like i really, don't want to define the until you really just have you really just have to say yes you really just have mm-hmm. to to be open to it to mm-hmm. to to choose to to have that relationship and it will come mm-hmm. that's what it that's what it feels like to me that there is no condition there is no mm-hmm. um if only and you know it's you choose to have that relationship and that relationship is yours to choose with god mm-hmm. and i i love that i love yeah. that yeah and like it's funny because um when we were first listening to this episode before we um recorded the part where Catherine talks about like this life being like a test essentially mm-hmm. um and it's come up in previous episodes like with Samaya's conversation this life being a test and that being a terrifying thought mm-hmm. um where it's only a site of pain or not only a sign of pain but like pleasure isn't something you're supposed to prioritize mm-hmm. um because you're working towards pleasure in the next life this whole idea Taylor was nodding along <laughs> It was so interesting to me. Do you want to explain a little bit where about where you come from? So Catherine was talking about um, listening to somebody speak and they were saying that earth is hell. And I stopped, Maha had to stop the podcast because I was like, I agree. I've been saying this. And Maha was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. You know, and she's like, you might want to wait until you finish. I'm like, but I've been saying this and I have said this. Um, because for me, granted, we be, in that sense, I do, I do think in some regards that earth is hell. Because for me, God, I, I've, I have trouble and I've always had trouble with imagining and, you know, thinking about a God that is merciful, all merciful, all forgiving, like, and the existence of an eternal hell. Like, th- those seem to be so much in contradiction. And Again, I, mm. it can be my human ignorance. It almost certainly is, but that's our fault. Like that is our fault. We are human. So I was, and in, in regards to what um, the, cat, the conversation Catherine was saying or the story that Catherine was talking about is that the person said, you know, that's why, because earth is hell. This is why, the, you know, you should work, you know, work do to do all the things to be pure, whatever, whatever. And it's interesting because, I see it as earth, earth is our separation from God. Mm-hmm. Earth is, you know, and I go back to my Catholic teaching, earth is uh, our fall from Eden. And, the, and, and to understand that God gives us free will and God has always given us free will, for me, I say the evil that exists on earth is the consequence of us separating ourselves from God. It is, it is the punishment. It is literally the punishment that we fear. And expand on that a little bit, because I know what you mean, <laughs> but, but you don't want people, people to might not know. What, what do you think? So what are you, what might I, what do you think I should expand on? So um, what is God in this context? Like God meaning our relationships to thinking about love, right? Thinking about like, what does it mean to be with God? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It means well. I'm talking. Mm-hmm. I'm. Ta- I'm talking specifically about our relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. Like I'm talking about. So the evil that exists in the world, and when I say evil, I'm talking about climate change. I'm talking about like all of the discrimination we can face. Like imagine. I'm talking about the displaced people. I'm talking about all of the the things that we can think about when we think shit. Earth kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. Is to me the fault of humans, not God humans not god and we are facing that right Mm -hmm. we are living through it and it is it differently affects us that's the horrible trick of it right it because sometimes and i when i was a kid i used to think this 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 shit sucks because the people who are doing the worst harm are the richest and most famous and Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like they're suffering and then you know in catholic school you would be told well in at the end of judgment they'll go to hell and all that stuff and 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 you know what about now what about justice for now mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and for me the way i make sense of it is what we do in our life right now in terms of how we help each other how we love each other how we take care of our earth that all of those relationships are our like that is the test Mm -hmm. that is the test and unfortunately it's kind of a cruel game because we are being tested on each other Mm -hmm. right like you know if i do harm i'm not necessarily physically harming myself I might be physically harming you but that is a harm that I'm doing to my spirit and to my connection with God I Mm. understand that it makes sense to me and yet it seems a little sadistic because it it is not harm as we understand it right Mm. when we understand you know somebody and we can also come back to this when we talk about justice Mm. when we understand you know someone being paying for their sins, you know, and the version of hell as burning in hell, that makes sense to us justice-wise because you've done something bad. Mm -hmm. And so you must feel pain. It must hurt. You must be, you know, in physical agony. And and so it, it almost is like a cruel contradiction if you think of earth as hell because the people who do sometimes the worst harm are the people who get away with it, Mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But I see God as all merciful, all justice, all loving, all forgiving. And so for me, that means in this life and in the next and in all of the next, that doesn't necessarily mean that there is a burning fire of hell. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if we get into a conversation about this later, we can also talk about karma. She believes in it. Okay, mm-hmm. I do. But I think for me, that means that we are called every single day to love one another and that that is our mission that we like it is a we are given the choice the chance and the choice and the unfortunate thing is many people don't don't do it mm-hmm. right but that's that's a cruel thing that we need to do it for ourselves god gives us the opportunity mm-hmm. thank you that kind of makes me think about like transformative justice mm-hmm. um, and a quick definition for y'all is um, a quote by Mia Mingus um, in a video that we will link in the description. Um, Transformative justice is a way of responding to violence and harm without creating more violence and harm. Um, So how how do we reconcile these ideas of hellfire Mm -hmm. 
with transformative justice? How do we reconcile the power of God with justice? How do we think about, or not even reconcile, but navigating these ideas? Mm -hmm. Because they're not necessarily in opposition to each other. It's just a lot to think about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we'll have more resources on transformative justice linked in the episode description, Mm -hmm. just um, for folks to do some more reading if you'd like. I think if we come back to it all, the nature of collectivity, collective healing, Mm -hmm. being with each other in community with each other, like, because we, we all understand that is the point of religion, Mm -hmm. right? That is the point of organizing together, Mm -hmm. right? That is the point of praying together. That's Mm -hmm. the point of praying for one another. Like Mm -hmm. all of that is to think and care, to develop empathy and a sense of community. And so, I mean, you and I have said this, we, we cannot imagine what justice looks like with when it comes to God, because we are human, yeah. you know, our humanity prevents us from being able to fully even comprehend the, the extent of God's wonder. Mm-hmm. And yet we also know that it's based on what we know and believe in God, that it will be based on love and it will be based on community. Mm-hmm. And it, and so we can have those models of care right now. Exactly. Right? We can, manifest the love and care of god in our our, everyday how we practice Mm -hmm. justice how we Mm -hmm. imagine and practice justice in our everyday lives yeah yeah thanks for listening to another episode of queer muslim resistance we'll be back next week with the second half of my conversation with Catherine talking about sex, pleasure, and her adult novelty business, and some more debriefing from me, Taylor, and Nicole. As always, you can find relevant links in the episode description. Make sure to check us out on Instagram for links to our Queer Muslim resource guide, to Tarif, a Queer Muslim reading group, and for awesome content in general. You can email us at queermuslimresistance at gmail.com for any inquiries. Thanks for listening!